Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts globally, and I'm very proud of that, but I'm going to tell you why it's ranked that high. It's all because of my truly incredible guests. I get to meet people from all over the world, and every one of them is fascinating, and in many ways, they become my mentors. So I feel immensely fortunate to spend time with people who are at the top of their game, and they're passionate about helping you achieve your goals in both your personal and your professional lives. They don't show up here holding anything back. They're here to share the secrets of peak performance with us. And I know you'll find their insights both inspiring and actionable. So sit back, relax, and get ready to take your life and your business to the next level. And today I am really pleased to welcome Adam Bryant to the show. He is, well, let let me start here. In 2017, Adam transitioned into his role as managing director at the Exco Group, and I hope I said that right, a renowned senior leadership development and executive mentoring firm. And this move came after an illustrious 30-year career in journalism with a noteworthy 18-year tenure at the New York Times. And during his time at that publication, Adam assumed his various roles, including reporter and editor, and was a visionary behind the popular corner office column, where he conducted insightful interviews with 525, that's impressive, I'm going to repeat that, 525 CEOs and other influential leaders over the span of a decade. And based on the invaluable insights gleaned from his corner office series and his extensive experience, extensive experience, say that twice, interviewing board directors, CEOs, CHROs, and prominent Black leaders in a well-regarded interview series on LinkedIn. Adam also authored four books. And his most recent work, The Leap to Leader, How Ambitious Leaders, I'm sorry, How Ambitious Managers Make the Leap to Leadership, was released this past July through Harvard Business Review Press. And continuing his dedication to the field of leadership, Adam authors a monthly leadership column for Strategy Plus Business magazine and serves as a senior advisor to the Rubin Mark Initiative for Organizational Character and Leadership at Columbia University. I'm out of breath, Adam. Welcome to the show. And thank you for sending me your book, The Leap to Leader. It's in front of me as we speak. Great. Well, thank you so much for the invitation, Denise. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, like I was telling you in the the green room, you and me both, by the way, when these books land on my doorstep, I read them very quickly. I give them a a quick, you know, pass through. And then just before I'm getting ready to get on the show with you, I spend the weekend with it, which I did this past weekend. And as I mentioned, it's an easy book to read. And you wouldn't think so, just given the (laughs) title, you think... Oh my gosh, yeah, but it's a very easy book to read. So thank you for sending it. Of course. And uh, and part of part of my goal in, in making it an easy book to read. So I've, I've been in the leadership space now probably about 13 years. And I, I figured out early on that if you're going to talk about leadership, there's there's three, like I call them currencies of leadership, the best way to talk about leadership. And the first one is is insights, like tell me something that makes me feel smarter about the world or an insight that maybe I've heard before, but I really needed to hear again. And then tell me a story that brings that to life, that makes it feel real, makes it memorable, makes make it sticky. And then the third one is, you know, show me a way to take that insight and put it into practice. Give me a tip, a tool, a framework, an approach, a technique, something that I could say, boy, that's a great insight. How do I, in effect, operationalize it, if you will? Like, how do I add that to my leadership playbook? And and in all my books and in all my interviews, like, to me, that's my goal. I'm after those three things. And if you focus on those three things, 
then you cut out the things that honestly I think make some leadership books hard to read, which is like platitudes and generalities or maybe case studies that are really specific to a particular company, but there's not that sort of broadly applicable insight. So, uh, but I'm glad to hear it, it landed well with you. It did. And, you know, inside the book, there's a, a notice or, well, it's a one sheet, I guess, uh, from Harvard Business Review Press. And they pretty well distilled it down. They said the chasm separating managers from leaders is widening because the responsibilities of leaders and the skills required, that's important. The skills required to be effective in the role are growing in numbers and complexity, but many people are ambitious. They want to cross the chasm. However, and I think this is where we're, we're going to really get into the, the meat of the issue. However, they must ask, ask themselves, do they really want to lead? Why? And what does it mean to be a leader? So, and I just mm-hmm. wrote down the three things in your playbook. I love that. That makes perfect sense. And I'm probably going to borrow that idea for something Please that I, I know I am. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm, I'm not going to probably. I wrote it down because I am going to use that thought in in something that I'm building. So thank you for that. Of course. Okay. So tell us a bit about yourself and you know, whatever it is that you want to talk about. The microphone is yours because I find this whole book and everything that we're talking about today pretty fascinating. Sure. Well, thank you. And I probably good starting point is is how I got into the leadership space in the first place. Um, it probably goes way back to when I was a kid. I played a lot of sports, and I I just remember from a very young age being very intrigued by the different leadership styles of different coaches, coaches that I played for, for I was watching you know, football on TV, just noticing it's like, well, why is that coach standing on the sidelines and flapping his arms and screaming? And the other one is just standing there sort of stone faced. And, and, and I just remember being very curious about that as a young age, uh, from a young age, you know, professionally, I, I, I started out in journalism and I was a business reporter for many years, um, ultimately got to the New York times. And as a business reporter, I conducted a lot of interviews with CEOs and mostly about their companies, their strategies, sort of the, all the traditional questions that business reporters usually ask CEOs, but something happened over time. I just found the more time that I, I spent with CEOs, the more I just became really curious about them as people. I mean, generally they seem pretty smart smart and 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 a lot of wisdom they're very fast brains a lot of them had great senses of humor um and i found myself wanting to set aside those questions about their companies and just ask them like how did you become you and how did you figure out how to do this job and so all of that got rolled up into um the the simple what if that i used to launch the corner office series the weekly interview series that with ceos that i did in the new york times in 2009 and and the what if was what if i sat down with ceos and never asked them a single question about their companies um, and instead just ask them about early influences that really shaped them as a leader and and how they think about all the universal challenges of, of leadership, you know, hiring, building teams, culture, career and life advice, how they mentor people, key leadership lessons they've learned. Um, so that was kind of the starting idea. The, the other guiding principle from the start was that I was going to embrace diversity in every sense of the word, like race, gender, nationality, for-profit, not-for-profit, size of company, um, industry, and, and really get kind of a broad look at, at leadership. So um, everything, you know, in terms of my involvement in the leadership space, I never thought I was going to be writing books, but everything I go back upstream, everything starts with that simple what if of interviewing CEOs, um, first and foremost, as leaders, not as, you know, how you're going to meet next quarter's targets. So, uh, which is a different approach back then. Uh, I mean, uh, other people have sort of approached leadership conversations a little bit more that way now. Um, But it's just, it's been a fascinating adventure. I mean, by now I've interviewed more than a thousand leaders between the New York Times series, 525 there, and then more than 500 on my different interview series on LinkedIn. And and to me, it's just endlessly fascinating. I mean, people have a lot of wisdom. They've got a lot of insights. And I will say that over the last few years, I think, you know, pick a number, Denise, like I think leadership has gotten five times harder, 10 times harder, um, just with 
with all the sort of incredible disruption and upheavals and the role of companies in society and what we expect from our managers and leaders. And so part of the reason I wanted to write this book is that um, uh, it, it's not just enough now as, as a manager to sort of execute the playbook that somebody handed to you, because that to me sort of defines the world pre pandemic when the world was a bit more stable that there was a sense of okay you're a manager we have these expected outcomes for you um here's the playbook and we just really need you to execute this playbook but we would know what we want you to do and what we need you to do and i, I think in the, in this environment first of all you have to hit those core responsibilities and and execute on the playbook that somebody has for you but I think in this environment, everybody has to have the the mentality, the mindset of that we're all figuring this out together, and that we're we all have to write the playbook, and that that requires a certain mental shift, right? Like just to have the courage um, to make decisions, um, you've got to push yourself to look around and see not only can you how how you can transform the job you're doing but how you can help your boss how you can help the company more broadly what are the opportunities that maybe the company doesn't even see what can you take off your boss's plate and so again that's why i really wanted to to dig into this this idea of what does it mean to be a leader i mean we can talk about what leaders do in terms of setting strategy and building teams and all those things but um, that's the kind of core question that that sort of grabbed me by the throat and I couldn't let go and wanted to write this book or just what what does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to become a leader in terms of your mindset rather than the title that's on your business card? And you said something very early on where you were looking at the coaches when you were a kid, you know, watching the different stone face or the ones that were jumping up and down and screaming at everybody. We've all seen them. To me, what I'm hearing from you is you're far more interested in personalities and their stories. Yes. And back, I think when you started, I'm just guessing, when you started your column, storytelling wasn't a big deal then. Now everybody wants a story. They want to know more. Yeah. And I, I think we expect a lot more of leaders today. I mean, just in the last few years, we've been hearing a lot more about things like humanity and vulnerability and authenticity right. and, and, and trust and all these qualities that we want and expect from our leaders. And we can spend a lot of time talking about each of those words and what it means. But but to me, it ultimately goes to the evolution of leaders because leadership used, you know, if we go way back in time, I mean, leadership was more framed as like, a, you know, very much hierarchical, top down, almost militaristic. I outrank you, do what I tell you to do. Um, and, you know, it was against that backdrop that the phrase servant leadership came up more than 50 years ago. And at that time, it felt like a, a departure because, no, no, it's not just about outranking people and wielding power and telling them what to do, but more of like, what can I do for you? Um, and so I think there has been this evolution of leadership styles and leadership approaches, which I think is great. Um, because I do feel like the world is heading to what I've believed for a very long time, which is that, you know, who you are is how you lead, right? Like there's a lot of books and articles and out there about, you know, how to lead and there's different sort of flavors of leadership. And I think people sometimes try to figure out it's, it's almost like buying a suit off the rack and putting on, it's like, is this how I'm supposed to lead? Um, and what I've always believed and continue to believe is that that becoming a leader is is both an external game and an internal game. And the external game is like setting strategy and all the things that you need to, in effect, do as a leader. But I think just as important is the internal work. It's how how you need to be as a leader, and you really have to figure out like do a lot of internal excavation and reflection about your own motivations, your own values, um, why you're leading all these core things that, that sort of, it, it in effect sort of gets things right 
in your own head and frankly, in your own heart for being a leader. And I think if you do that, I think you're going to show up much more authentically as a leader um, because to me, one of the ways that manifests, I mean, of the thousand plus leaders that I've interviewed, um, the vast majority of them have been in person, certainly the pandemic. Um, and I, I have just found there is this quality that you can see in people's eyes. And I've always believed that eye contact is sort of the 5G of communication. Um, but there's just this, this quality that I've seen in so many leaders. There's just this sense of calm, confidence, not arrogance, but just confidence. I know who I am. I know what I stand for. I know what I believe in. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm bad at. And that manifests as executive presence. It man, manifests as gravitas. But I think that's something that anybody who aspires to be in a leadership position or is in a leadership position really needs to work on. Again, that sort of internal excavation and, and reflection about you know, your your approach and why and where it comes from so that, again, it, it doesn't feel like you're trying on different suits that you bought off a rack that don't quite fit. Well, and, you know, I'm going to make the leap to company culture. If you have a leader who has not done, and I love that, that term, I just wrote it down, internal excavation, to go from, you know, boss, corner, you know, has the corner office and they say, just do what I tell you, nobody gets hurt. That doesn't really work when you're a leader. So once once you're in that arena, if you haven't kind of prepared for it before, it it occurs to me that it behooves you to start sitting down with yourself and saying, okay, what do I have that is my, these are my personal talking points. These are my personal values. I've got a great sense of humor. We don't see that in leaders very often. We're starting to. And I think that was a shame. You know, we we see them as people in suits that would just get up in front of a microphone and say this, that, and the other, and off they go. It's like, okay, you didn't touch me, but okay. Yeah. And, and, and I think that approach worked for a very long time, but we we are living in now what what I like to call the sort of double click era of leadership, and what I mean by that is that you have to be prepared as a leader for people to a- ask follow up questions. Right? There right. may have been a time where you could say like these are the company's values, and this is our point of view on that. But now I think people are much more vocal, um, and employees feel like they have much more of a right not only share their opinion, but even a vote in the company and to sort of press their leaders um, for, you know, with those follow-up questions. And, and, and that's why, I mean, we, we have seen in our work, we've heard stories of, I mean, there's so many issues in society now that are sort of working their way into the workplace. And, and we've heard a lot of stories about an executive running a town hall or something. And somebody will say, well, what's, you know, what's your position on, on this, whatever the, the big headline controversial issue is. And, and the leader might say, well, this is what we believe at our company and this is why. And then the person will put up their hand again and say, I didn't ask you what the company's point of view is. I asked you what your point of view is. And so I think people are pressing leaders much more to understand them as human beings. And that's yet another reason why um, I think it's so much important that that you do that internal reflection so that you are calm and confident as people are asking those follow-up questions. And 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 to me, a lot of that internal reflection work. I always encourage people get out three blank sheets of paper and put one question at the top of each of those three pages. And the first question is, what do you think is the difference between management and leadership? And again, there's no right answer, but what what does that mean to you? And the second question on the second piece of paper is, why do you want to lead? The first section of the book that I wrote is, do you really want to lead and really is italicized? And and these jobs are hard. I mean, a lot of people say, of course, I want that leadership job. And then they get into the job and they discover, wow, I'm dealing with people problems all day long and I don't have time to do work at work and and just sort of the headaches and the stress and all that other stuff. And And so you have to be very clear, I think, in 
with yourself about why you want to do this. And, and if the answer is power or money, I, I don't think those are, you know, the money bump is going to last for a while and the power stuff doesn't really play um, in society anymore. So you have to get clear about why you want to do this. And then the third question that people should, should really wrestle with is the question of who are you as a leader? And I always tell people, you will probably go through your entire career and nobody will ever ask you the question, who are you as a leader? But I think the sort of return on investment of time that you invest in answering that question um, is going to be is going to be pretty strong. Um, and which then leads to the question, well, if the question is who are you as a leader, like what is a good answer? sound like like how are you supposed to answer that if somebody asks you that as a town hall meeting and and to me i think what a good answer is is um to be able to say um denise these are my three core values things that are really important to me as a leader and it goes back to my sort of framework of you know insights and stories and okay so how do you put those into practice and and i think to answer the question effectively, you have to do those three things. You say, these are the three values that are based on these sort of insights, these lessons I've learned. So that's the insights. Now let me tell you a story about why they're important to me and how they became important to me. That that makes it real, right? Because people are always skeptical. It's like, tell me a story that, you know, from when you were a kid or maybe like an early job, maybe you had a bad boss or adversity you faced in life. Tell me a story of how you learned that insight and that makes it feel real. And then the third part is okay. What does that work? What does that look like in practice? I mean, if I'm if I'm working for you and with you, like how does that show up? And so, if you're going to tackle that question of who are you as a leader, I, I think that's a a good starting template for how to answer that question effectively. Do many of us go into leadership knowing? why we're doing it. I mean, I agree with you. I think we need to sit down and do the homework and do the, I love that term, the excavating. We don't know. You know, a lot, a lot of times, and I see this happen quite a bit, people just kind of thrust into it and they're rocking around, you know, along pretty well for a while. And all of a sudden, not so well. And yeah, I, one of the reasons that I'm reading this in your book on page 31, the dynamics in the workplace are a function of the interaction of what we all have in our suitcases. How brilliant is that? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think people do get into these roles. I mean, the, the metaphor that I use is there's these two very strong rivers that carry people along and to sort of create this momentum that that pushes them into these leadership roles. And, and one of the, those rivers is, is on the company side because the way big companies work is they, they start saying, okay, well, we need to figure out our, who our high potentials are, our future leaders. We want to make sure they we develop them um, uh, and we're assessing them and they start putting names, you know, on a screen and faces and all those things. And they're, companies rarely pause to ask, wait a minute, are have we checked with these people? Like, do they actually want to move up? Like we're thinking about these, them for these top jobs, but do we know that they really want to do this? And and companies often don't have those questions, don't have those conversations. And I, and I think they should. So that's one of the rivers. The, the second river is just sort of the broader um, sort of influences and pressures of society, right? Because to move up into a leadership position, you are going to get a status bump, right? You're going to get a bigger title, a bigger office, you know, for those companies that are still back in the office, um, you're going to get more money. And there's just this, all these sort of like pressures in society. So of course you move up, of course you want those things. So I've just seen a lot in, in my career of like people get into these bigger jobs and they haven't really done their homework about what those jobs are actually like. There's just this assumption, of course I want that. And they get in there and it's, there's a little bit of, you know, wow, like I didn't know what this was going to be like and all the things that I'm really good at, all the things that I'm really, uh, I really enjoy doing, I'm not doing here. And so they're often unhappy. And, you know, I, to me, part of the analogy is like when 
teenagers are graduating from high school and deciding which college to go to. I mean, they do so much research, right? Like just the phenomenon of the modern day phenomenon of the college tour. You got to go see 10 colleges and, you know, your parents are always asking you like, how do you feel about how you feel about this college? And so that all this research to get the perfect fit and all, and yet in our careers, it's like, of course we want that job and we haven't really done the research. Um, and so that we know what we're getting into, um, and I've, you know, this is from, from somebody like me who I've been in leadership roles, but I've also turned down a couple of promotions, um, and got some funny looks when I did turn them down just because, you know, I know myself well enough. And I was the deputy on a couple of big news desks, the number two, and I saw what the, the, the boss did, the number one did. Um, and I just said, wow, like I, you know, I don't think I'll be good at that. And I don't really want to do that. And I just, again, knew myself well enough and that the status bumps didn't mean that much to me. Um, so again, all comes back to this idea, be very clear about why you want to move up. That is brilliant advice. And I'm looking again, I've got stickies all over your book. It's getting fat. It's getting fatter by the day. <laughs> On page 145, and you've got some terrific quotes in here from people like I'm assuming that you have interviewed personally. And this one is from John Donovan. He's a former CEO of AT&T Communications. And he says, making the leap to leader requires killing your old self. I have to tell you, Adam, that one made me gulp. That yeah. that made my stomach hurt, actually. <laughs> Why? You have to. You have to basically, the way I read it, was if you're going to be a leader, you cannot be the person you were in the office before. You have to step into a new role. You have to do the excavation that you've been talking about and put it in the, the parlance of the South. It ain't going to be easy. You know, you have to step up as a, a whole new person in a way. Or am I just yeah, reading? No, no, that that's exactly right. And, and I think a lot of people need to understand that it is a completely different job, you know, what, what John is saying there. And, and very often you do get promoted because you're really good at the, maybe the individual contributor role that you had beforehand. And now you're suddenly managing a team where you go from managing a team of 10 to 500 or whatever. And each one of those jobs is completely different jobs. So there has to be that level of awareness and humility. It's like, okay, full reset. I am doing a new job rather than just relying on the things that I've done in the past. Because as human beings, like when we're under stress, we tend to go back to the things that we know. And usually those are our comfort zones. Those are the things that we're good at. And there just has to be that. It's like, you can't do that, right? And and that's why you see all the rookie mistakes that man, new managers make, right? The micromanaging, right? They feel like they're responsible. Rather than building the people, they're still doing their old job. And another great way of thinking about that, I interviewed this woman in the book named Mary Elizabeth Perret, and she she talked about an important lesson that she heard from a mentor as she was moving up who said to her, as you are moving up, you have to give away the things that you love to do. And because if you are going to scale yourself, and to me, like that is such a great insight, like all those things that you're really good at, that you really love to do, you have to give those away. And that can be hard for a lot of people because you get a lot of reward and positive feedback externally, internally, boy, I love doing this. I'm so good at it, you know, but you've got to give that stuff away if if you're going to move up and scale yourself as a leader. So how do you, I'm assuming that's a, a mental trap that leaders fall into. How do you avoid that? Well, I think everything starts with self-awareness to me. It's just being aware of the phenomenon because I, I think it's very hard for people to step outside themselves. And and that's why I, I believe so passionately in the power of just like a great leadership insight, like just to have somebody tell you if you're going to scale yourself as a leader, you've got to give away the things that you love to do and that you're really good at. And if you're if you're listening, right? If you're curious, if you're trying to improve as a leader, that insight alone will make you aware of the trap, 
right? Because the the trap is to do the opposite, to to hold on to the things that that you love to do and that you should be giving away and delegating to others. So um, I'm, you know, I, I just from interviewing more than a thousand of these leaders, I'm I'm kind of an inside junkie, right? Like I, that's and and I love a great story and just those little insights that you know sometimes it's just a phrase sometimes it's just one sentence but there's just so much packed into that and so if you get the insight the opposite of the insight is a trap right that's a blind spot so to me a lot of it starts with that and then being brutally honest with yourself um about whether whether that's a challenge for you or not and i love these quotes i mean i actually when i read it again this weekend i caught myself flipping through it and looking for the quotes because they're easy to find and i'm like ooh, ooh, like that one and i would put a sticky i will not mark up a book it's just against my religion i can't do it <laughs> <laughs> sticky notes those are acceptable but this exactly. is one that i really love and it's by ruth simmons and she's a former president of prairie view a and m university and I love this. You have to be open and alert at every turn to the possibility that you're about to learn the most important lesson of your life. And I think that should be a daily mantra. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, to me, that's, that's at the top of my list. I mean, my sort of all time favorite career and life advice that I've heard from the thousand plus interviews, just that insight of like, mm -hmm. just go through life at, at thinking like at any moment, literally at any moment, you could learn the most important lesson of your life. And if you do that, you know, you're just, you become much more curious about you know, whether mm -hmm. you're reading or talking to people and <clears throat> almost go, go through life. Like you're running a podcast and try and learn from people. And, and so to me, that's a great one. And, the the best career advice I I heard like Ruth's what we just talked about to to me feels like broader life advice. The best career advice I heard was captured in a phrase uh, from one CEO a guy named Joe Plumeri who who talks about playing in traffic, and what he means by that is just get out there, just go do stuff, meet people, get involved, and good things will happen. Um, you know, show energy, reach out to people, try and make those connections and things will happen. And I just think that's so true. And I think we need constant reminders of that because with the pandemic and a lot of people working at home um, and I listen, I get, I totally get the benefits from work from home and all that, but you, you have to remember that your, it, you know, if, for the people who who are listening or are in their 20s or early 30s or still early on in their career what i often tell people is that when you're starting out people often have very detailed career plans right like by this age i want to have this title i want to be making this much money and and they've got this great plan set out for the next 10 years but when you get more to my age with a with a 6 in front of the number you you look back and you realize that your career path is going to be determined much more by the relationships that you build, you know, with, with colleagues that you work with, with bosses that you really click with and your great team and they go to a new job, a new company, they want you with them. Like that is going to determine your career path uh, to me much more than the plans you make. And so going back to this advice of play in traffic, like, always be looking for opportunities to build authentic relationships with new people. And I, and I say that as a, to make a distinction between sort of like everyday networking where you're just like connecting with people on LinkedIn or, you know, trading business cards at a conference or things like that is you've got to really invest the time to build authentic relationships with people. Well, and that happens, and there's a, and I just scooted right past it. I meant to keep a note, but at some point in the book, you talk about where your peers need to be your cheerleaders. And I yeah, thought yeah. that was a pretty important, you know, because you don't want people stabbing you in the back or being jealous or hating you. And I think, again, that goes back to excavating and company culture. Yeah. yeah. And, and in addition, you know, the mentors at my firm, and I've seen this myself, is that 
generally people look, everybody's really busy, right? I mean, we've all dealing with hundreds of emails and, and calendars that look like Tetris games, but, you know, with all that sort of time management challenge, I think people respond to it by focusing their energies in two directions generally. So if they're a manager or leader, they're focusing their energy up, right? They got to manage their bosses and you got to do that for all the obvious reasons. And you got to manage South to like manage your team, your direct reports. And so that those sort of two directions, North, South, but because of that, people often forget the East West relationships, those peer relationships, people on your team. And a lot of people serve on a lot of teams, right? Those committees and different things. And you have to realize that, you know, those people are more than anybody else are going to determine whether you get the promotion and whether you're going to succeed when you get the promotion, because you, you do need those people to be your cheerleaders, they, you do need those people to think if they get that promotion, then that's going to be a win for me too, because they help me, they believe in me, they're going to lift the whole organization. And those are based on relationships and you got to invest time in those relationships. And, and very often that's a blind spot for people because they just tell themselves, I'm so busy managing North and South and just trying to get my work done and everything else. I don't have time for that. But you need to recognize that you simply have to invest time in building those relationships if you do want to move up. Exactly. And I'm looking at page 160. And it says, look in the ugly mirror. One of the biggest stumbling <laughs> I know I laugh too. One of the biggest stumbling blocks for organizations is an unwillingness to be brutally honest about the challenges they face. And without that shared context, People will create their own narratives where they think the company is doing well and where it's struggling. So that's the East-West, right? That's where you have to really pay attention. Yeah, yeah. And that's another aspect of it. And and to me, that that ugly mirror uh, line from Laurie Schultz is another great metaphor. And I apologize for the, the sirens in the background, the soundtrack of New York City, but um, just this, this okay. idea. I just of, closed uh, my door because my cat was screaming. <laughs> She's 18 years old. She's a diabetic and she has wow. every once in a while, I, I think she's faking it, kitty dementia. I'm starving. Uh, you must feed me. I'm starving. You must feed me. You you're licking your lips. You just ate. So I finally just locked her out. I'm sorry. To, sorry to hear about your cat. Um, but, but, Again, this this notion of of the ugly mirrors, just sort of being brutally honest with yourself. I think it applies to people individually and also to companies more broadly, because there there is this particular flavor brand of leader where they they want to be cheerleaders, they want to be positive, and it's like I've got to motivate the troops. So it's like, man, we're awesome, we're awesome, and just that approach. It, there are those moments where you say you need to be brutally honest. Say, look. These are challenges for us. We have some competitors who are doing better than us at this. And if we don't transform ourselves and fix that, then we're going to get left behind. And, and just that having that sort of clear, tough look in the mirror conversation with the company is so important for leadership because every company is in some stage of transformation, but People don't like change, so you have to create the reasons why you need to change. And because if you don't have that and say, hey, everybody, this is what we're good at. This is what we need to get better at. And if we don't do that, status quo is not an option for these reasons. If you don't have that conversation, then people are going to make up their own narratives in their own head about how they're doing it. And it's just going to get hard to people to, to be aligned around that. It is. Listen, anytime I hear rah, rah, rah. I don't know. I'm I'm not a negative person at all, but I'm a deeply suspicious person. And I think exactly. most of us are given that way. Yeah, as as, as you should be. So good. <laughs> I hate to think that I'm a you know kind of a negative person. I well, like, I, I would say there's there's a world of difference between cynical and skeptical. So oh, explain that. Well, I, I think cynical is you just assume everything's bad or worse oh, or you're just no, sort of like that. negative. Yeah. And, but skeptical is like, you know, there's a little bit of show me like, uh, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. It, you, you want to pressure test it and make sure it's real. 
Absolutely. Okay, so then I'm I love this book. I'm telling you, don't be a victim. I'm skipping around and I know you're probably trying to figure out why I'm doing it, but I've got sticky the sticky's fault. So it says don't be a victim. Another common trap that people can fall into is that they start telling themselves that things are happening to them, that they are victims. Let's talk about that because you know. Is that a personality issue or is it stress? What what do you see when this starts happening? Yeah. And I, I think a little bit of context um, helps is, um, and, and I'll, I'll tell the story of, of how this insight landed for me. So I was interviewing this young CEO woman named Layla Jana, who tragically died a few years ago, but um, I was interviewing her and she was telling me about her childhood and upbringing. And it was, it was really tough. I mean, just she moved a lot. She was bullied as as a kid, um, really rough relationship with her parents and just sort of on and on and on. And yet she seemed to have this incredibly positive attitude. And so at one point I just asked her, I said, you know, Layla, you seem to have this really positive attitude. Where where does that come from? And she she said um five words that I've never forgotten. She said, reality is just source material. And, you know, what that means is like, yeah, what what that. Repeat repeat that because I think it's important that people hear that again. Yeah. Yeah. So the the five words she shared with me were reality is just source material. And what she means by that is like, we are all going through experiences in our lives. Right. And we tend to assume that what we think about those experiences is reality. And her point is like, you need to be able to stand outside yourself and realize that you are telling yourself a story. We are all telling ourselves stories about our experiences, right? In the same way that people write history books and kind of pick and choose about how to frame, you know, what data points or your, you know, film editors, they cut a movie, they've got all this, all this you know, film, but they're editing a certain way to tell the story. You need to recognize that you're doing that and we are all doing it. I'm doing it too. We are all doing that for ourselves. And so once you say, okay, I get that, I think it's easier for you to stand outside yourself and then spot traps that people fall into. And I think one of the traps, one of the stories that people tell themselves is that they're a victim, right? Stuff happens to them or rather than for them as the expression goes and i think one of the ways that i've i've really come to understand this too i've i've interviewed hundreds of entrepreneurs i mean leaders of all kinds but hundreds of entrepreneurs and and i do think that entrepreneurs are wired a little differently than most of us and the key way is that i they generally don't dwell on bad news very long it's sort of like something happens they're facing a headwind and they immediately go to like what is the opportunity here what's plan b c and d they just don't dwell on wow man something just really bad happened to us it just happened to me it's like okay that happened let's move on how do we fix this what's what's plan b and and so that that victim narrative um just have to be very mindful of that another trap that people can fall into is the fairness you know it's a close cousin of a victim right like something happens that you say that's not fair it's like well what is fairness right like the world doesn't get up in the morning and decide to be unfair to you you're just processing it as as seemingly unfair so again so much of what i've tried to provide in the book is those insights those frameworks but just a lot of them are designed to sort of help people get outside themselves so that in effect they can coach themselves they can mentor themselves it's like okay is that a productive way to think why are you thinking that <clears throat> what do you need to do to make this jump what what are the traps you're falling into that maybe you just got a promotion but but you're not giving away those things that you really like to do so you're falling into that trap of being still wanting to be an individual contributor even though you're now responsible for a team of 10 people and that makes sense. And I'm going to to jump a little bit more. Learn the art of horn tooting. That was a difficult one for me, because you know, especially as girls, we're told, you know, don't 
don't let the boys know you're smarter than them. <laughs> My father was one of those. He, so you're supposed to be seen, not heard. And I was an yep. introvert, so that wasn't a real problem. What he didn't realize was that I heard every darn thing and remembered <laughs> all of it. So that was a right. big boo-boo on his part. But we should, and, and what you say in the book here is, here's another area where people can create unhelpful narratives about themselves they may take pride in saying i don't like to brag when i hear that by the way my my spidey sense goes up and it feels too political to take credit for my ideas i let my work speak for itself and you say that the impulses are admirable but unhelpful so let's talk a bit about that yeah and and everything's a a balancing act right and and we've seen or maybe we've lived these ourselves of 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 the two extremes. So, you know, I, I, I like that expression in, in workplaces, there are, there are workhorses and show ponies, right? Like the workhorses are like, put, put my head down. I'm just going to get the work done. And their show ponies are always grandstanding and looking for credit and telling people everything they did. And, and, and each of those at the extreme are not good. Right. And so you need to sort of understand that continuum because, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert too. And I, tend to skew more of just like, look, if you do your work really well, you'll get noticed. Um, and if you put your head down and sort of be humble and, and, and you'd like to think the world works that way, but sort of recognize that both of those extremes can be problematic and you need to find the balance so that if you are a workhorse and think my work should speak for itself, it doesn't always, and you need to get comfortable advocating for yourself. Not in a show pony kind of way where you're running around taking credit for stuff and saying, look what I did, look what I did. Um, but at those key moments when you're talking with your boss about you know what you want to do or maybe asking for a raise, things like that, that you are comfortable where you say, you know, like the team did this and we had a really good year. We started out the year. These were our three big goals and and we accomplished them and this is how and this is why and you know, give a lot of credit to the team. And and by doing that, it's sort of signaling like, yes, you are giving credit to the team, but you led the team. So you're you are going to get that sort of broader halo of, of leadership. And and again, a lot of it is just sort of avoiding those sort of problematic narratives um that that people sometimes get caught in, where it's just like, I don't want to cause any trouble, I don't want to be seen as difficult. Um, I will I will get my rewards and you know, if if I if I just put my head down and, and you'd like to think the world works that way, sometimes it does, but you just can't assume. So you have to get comfortable advocating for yourself in ways that don't feel like really uncomfortable. That's actually very helpful. And I just scribbled that down too. Listen, your book's been out there for a while. I've had it for a while. What kind of um feedback are you getting what kind of questions are you getting from people who have read it and said oh or comments what's the, what's going yeah. on with the book yeah the feedback's been great and and i do think timing is everything i mean i started working on this book probably two and a half years ago and and but the world has gotten more complicated and and all i think all big companies and even medium-sized and small companies they're all saying the same thing which is that we need to we need our man managers to step up more as leaders. Um, but I think a lot of the conversations and the stuff that's that's really resonating, Denise, is, is around these, these big notions of authenticity and humanity and vulnerability. Um, and of all the talks that um, I do and have done based on the book, probably the the most popular one the the one that feels like it resonates the most with the moment we're in is just this idea of like who are you as a leader right and first of all keying people into this idea like you may not ever get asked that question but you should know the answer to the question and and this is what good looks like and sounds like in terms of how to answer that question and and that's something that people really I, i find are gravitating to a lot well, that makes sense because we don't know what we don't know. I mean, just as a wild, for instance, I'm known as a nerd in stilettos. I have a computer science degree. Nobody cares about it but me because I had to pay for it. But I am, an, right. and, and I have a closet that looks like Nordstrom's threw up in there. So 
<laughs> there you have it. But I, one of my podcast guests many years ago, it's probably well over 10 years ago now, asked me, well, Denise, what is it that you do? Which is something I'm not asked very often. And it showed because I didn't know what to tell him. And I said, well, you know, I build websites. I have a small, you know, digital marketing agency. I'm a cat herder. And I have a closet full of stilettos. I guess I'm a nerd in stilettos. And he said, say that again. I said, and fortunately, I had just said it. So I could, I remembered what I had said. And I repeated it. And he said, call me when this is over. I said, well, I always do to tell you thank you, but I'll certainly call you. I called him and he gave me a right talking to. He really did. He said, I don't understand why you are not branding yourself as a nerd in stilettos. Listen, when the, the PR publicist for the Academy Awards tells you to do something, you do it. Yeah, of course. But I didn't know. I had no idea. So we don't, yeah. my point is, we don't know what we don't know. So the advice you're giving, I think, is the best of the hour that we've spent so far. Yeah, and just one point to underscore on that. I think one of the many, many reasons why it's important is that I, I do think the best bosses are predictable not predictable in the sense I know exactly what you're going to say at every moment, but that your behaviors are predictable. Because if you look at the other side and say, okay, look, there's, you know, a hundred different flavors of bad bosses, right? And most of us have probably lived through the, that scar tissue. But I think one of the flavors of bad bosses, like when they come in in the morning, it's like, well, what mood are they in today? Right. Um, and and that can be exhausting because you're spending a lot of energy just watching them out of your corner of your eye instead of focusing on the work. Um, another, you know, similarly, another flavor of bad boss is somebody who says, look, these are the values that are really important to me. And they say all the right things. But then when they get under stress, when they get under pressure, you see them behaving in ways that it's clear that they've kind of said to themselves, I'm just going to put my values in this parking lot over here and then I'll pick them up on the way back. Um, or when, when we get out of this mess and, and that's when you go, okay, that's, you've just sent me very clear signals that you, that those aren't your values, right? Because it, your personal values should be in effect, like, these are the hills I'm going to die on, right? Like regardless of what happens, regardless of any situation, these things are values and behaviors that you can expect from me and you understand why they're important for me. And I'm just not going to cross those lines. And I think if you can do that as a leader, you're in effect making kind of a social contract with your team. And you're just saying like, this is what you can rely on from me. Um, and you know, if you do that in a way where you're telling the stories about how you learn those lessons and all that, like I generally find when you asking people and trying to understand people, I often go back, like, tell me about those early years. Like, what were you doing outside of school? How have your parents influenced you? What adversity did you face early on? And if people are open and they tell stories, like there is this, there is this moment that I find happens with people. It's, it's almost like a, you know, unlocking a safe where the tumblers just line up. It's like somebody tells you something about themselves. You go, now I got you. Like, I understand who you are. I feel like I know you as a human being first and foremost, and not just a colleague. And when you can have those moments that builds trust. And so I, so much of, I, I think the key to leadership is it's, it's around these ideas of authenticity and trust because you're just not going to follow people who you you don't believe in, um, who you you don't find them to be predictable and reliable, and and who you don't trust. And there's another great quote in here from Ruben Mark. He's a former CEO of Colgate Palmolive. There's no question that you're being studied at every moment. It's the little things that matter. Yeah, and and and. To me, that's such an important insight. It doesn't matter if you're managing a team of five people or five hundred thousand, but just know that you are being studied, and, and and that, and also know that people are reading things into your body language that you probably don't intend. Um, so you have to be incredibly aware about how you carry yourself, your body language. Um, just using if you know. If you shift to using the word may instead of might, they're going to go, oh, 
like what's up with that and and recognize that employees they're sort of like archaeologists right like they're always <laughs> dusting the, the the ground for clues it's like oh they said this like something's up right and they'll create these incredibly elaborate and often very dark narratives about something that you don't intend at all um and and I had a I had a personal lesson I was when I was working at the New York Times I had a colleague who I she didn't work for me, but we had worked together in different capacities. And she said, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. And so we jumped into a conference room and she said, are you mad at me? And I said, of course not. Like, why would you think I was mad at you? She said, I I don't know. I just thought you were mad at me. And I I realized as, as I reflected on this, I mean, my day job was as an editor on some big news desks. And a lot of my days were spent like turning stories like you know, story that may have landed as a B into an A story because I had to go present it in a couple hours to a room full of the top editors. And so I'd be walking through the newsroom and and with a probably thinking really hard and I was probably furrowing my brow or something when I just happened to lock eyes with her. Um, and so that was a great lesson for me because from that moment on, I, I realized it's like, Okay, I'm managing people like I've got to be much more aware of my body language and, and pro project more of that sort of calm and confidence and positive energy. And you had said something about great eye contact earlier. So that's part and parcel of the same kind of comment. Listen, yeah. before I let you go, is there was there any moment, you know, when you started kind of collating all of this work that you've done? And all of these great quotes, was there any particular moment or maybe even a set of of these people that said to you, I've got to write this down. I've got to make this a book. That prompted me to write the books? Do you yeah. Mean, yeah. Was there, yeah. I mean, you've done so much of this work. At some point you had to have written and, you know, started making lists. Okay, I've interviewed these people. I've interviewed these people. These are the categories. I need to share this. I can't keep it to myself. Yeah, at, at at some point, like I started seeing patterns, but I've I've written four books now, and the way I write books, everybody's got their own approach. Is that under underneath the hood of each of the four books is a very simple question that I didn't know the answer to, and I felt like I needed to write the book to not only answer for myself, but I thought that people would benefit from me both asking and answering the question, um, and so that's. That's how I write books. It's like, well, what is the core question? And if I'm personally passionate and in really intrigued about that question, just like with the leap to leader, it's like, well, what what does it mean to be a leader? Like, what is the mindset set shift you need to make to be a leader? I I didn't know. I didn't feel like I could answer that question, um, but I knew that the answers were in my thousand plus interviews, and that if I reread them all and with a stack of index cards that I use very old school I know but I do too that I, I have all over the place <laughs> I buy them by the pallets so, uh... <laughs> I've got them literally and in colors you know oh, colors are important so I know what's you know what's this project for and I have to tell you this because I'm a nerd when I've gotten through it in an index card and I don't load them up it's only one or two three maybe three things on it if it's a busy day but Depending on what's going on, once I've crossed everything off, I sh fire up my shredder and I shred it. It's very cathartic. Oh, nice. Just tearing them yeah. up and tossing them is not the same. Yeah. Well, you're with the color coding, that means you're much more sophisticated than I am with, with this card. But <laughs> no. it's, uh... I'm probably just a lunatic. You can say it. I don't care. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, I am so glad you wrote this book, and it it really is a wonderful book. And before I let you go. And the insights are just incredible. I've, like I said, I've read it twice. Well, once and a half. The first time I skimmed through it, the second time I went page by page. And it is very much an important part of my entrepreneurial library. And I will be grabbing it over and over again. But before I let you go, tell people where they can find you. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. Do you have any upcoming projects or initiatives that you're working on that you'd like to tell us about? In all honesty, Denise, I've written two books in the last four years, and I'm taking a little bit of a break from from <laughs> writing books. But um, but our 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 firm, the Exco Group, um, leadership development firm. I mean, it's it's 
it's uh, we, we're we're growing quickly, and and a, a little project that I'm working on now is I'm we have 85 mentors at our on our uh, team. They're all former CEOs or global business leaders, and I've interviewed them a lot before. But I'm I'm going back and starting a new interview series with each of them, and essentially asking them two questions: like, what are the most the two most important leadership lessons you've learned personally, and how did you learn them? And what are the two most common pieces of advice that you give people when you're mentoring them? And uh, to me, it's sort of like a very tightly focused interview, but everything is about, again, tell me like those insights and stories. And that is so important. So Adam, where can people find you? Sure. My personal website is Adam Bryant books, all one word.com. And our firm is the Exco group. And our website is Exco leadership, E-X-C-O leadership.com. And you can be found on LinkedIn and I think Twitter and social media. Yeah, very, very much LinkedIn. I, I do have those four interview series um, and obviously free to subscribe and all that. And, and there's just a lot of good insights in those conversations. So it's not about me. It's the people I interview. I understand. Adam, thank you so much. It has been a genuine pleasure chatting with you today. And I really appreciate you sending me the book. Um, So to our audience, before we wrap up today's episode, if you have enjoyed today's chat with Adam Bryant and found our insights helpful, please leave a, a review and rating on iTunes and get in touch with him. He's easy to find. Just go to his websites or LinkedIn and ask him questions. Apparently he really likes questions. And I think that's an amazing thing. So your feedback helps us and improve, helps me to improve and reach more people on their own success journeys. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button, leave a review and share your partner in success radio with your friends and your colleagues. And thank you for tuning in and we will see you next time again, Adam. Thank you so much. Thank you, Denise. Really appreciate it. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.